Grow Microbiology, a podcast dedicated to the sharing of ideas, best practices, teaching tips, educational solutions, and other exciting topics in microbiology. My name is Valerie Kramer, a member of the McGraw-Hill product team, and I'm excited to have author, instructor, presenter, and community activist, Dr. Kelly Cowan, coming to us live from Ohio. How are you, Hi. Kelly? It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Is this your first podcast? Um, yes, actually. Awesome. Well, I know you've had, uh, we've had conversations about some ideas that you've had about doing podcasts before, so I'm glad mm -hmm. this is going to be your first appearance with us. Mm -hmm. And there's just so much to love about Kelly. I think my favorite thing is there's so many layers. She takes teaching even deeper to helping students from all backgrounds reach a common goal and has even made it her life's mission, which is pretty darn cool. So, speaking of all these roles that you have, can you tell us a little bit about yourself from your words and how you became to love microbiology and teaching and from research to dean to ASM chair and so many other roles that you've had? Uh, um, well, have you ever played pinball? <laughs> That's me. <laughs> no. I mean, I came from a first generation, I'm a, I'm a first generation college student and um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. In high school, I was not a science person. I took, you know, science for athletes or whatever. And um, when I went to college, I was still pretty aimless. And I ended up majoring in dental hygiene as my first degree. And it, that kind of makes me understand students who are a little bit rudderless, who don't know exactly what they're going to do. Um, while I was in dental hygiene, I have to say, I took uh, a microbiology course, and I was blown away. Um, I guess I'm going to have to give my teacher, Bob Stapp, credit for that. But I thought, oh, my gosh, this is so fun. And then I went to visit his research lab. And growing up in eastern Kentucky, as I did, I had no idea what a research lab was all about. And I just saw people just a little bit older than I was coming up with ideas and testing them and, and basically playing. And, and while they were playing, they were creating knowledge. And that I, I never looked back. I went to graduate school in um, medical microbiology. Um, I did two postdocs. And then I got a teaching position, uh, feeling very confident in my abilities, of course. And then I realized what I didn't know about teaching right away. And I was never satisfied that I had actually um, done as good a job as I could have done for every single student in my class. And so that's when I got interested in pedagogical research. Um, and as you know, ASM has a fantastic pedagogy arm, undergraduate education, and eventually I got very involved in that group. And one thing led to another and me being very naive and thinking, oh, I can write better educational materials. I decided to write a textbook uh, again, my naivete helps me a lot because I don't know what I don't know <laughs> about doing things and I'll just jump in. So that was probably uh, 15, 18 years ago and I love authoring. I love trying to do a better job um, for students and teachers and it never gets boring. boring. <clears throat> well, and it's we're so lucky. She, um, Kelly has two books that she does for us and they are both, um, you're making a difference in so many students' lives, and, and we are so thankful we can deliver your content. 
So what excites you of all that, of actual teaching in general? What excites you the most? Well, one of my very favorite things is teaching a class and they don't know that I wrote the book that they're using and I make fun of the book and they laugh. <laughs> but seriously, um, as soon as as soon as I thought about this question, as soon as you said it, I thought one word and that's relationships. I'm a very relational teacher. I'm kind of an empathic person. And when I walk in a classroom, you know, and I think this is true of many, not all, you know, you don't have to be this way to be a good teacher, but just to have empathy for every single person's situation and where they are right now and how to move them to the next place. And you really, the research shows that if a student feels like their professor or their teacher is relating to them, has some very small even emotional connection to them, then their learning is improved. And um, that happens to be something that comes natural to me. So, you know, it's exhausting sometimes, but <laughs> it is the, it seems to, to work, relationships. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, your students are really lucky that you already know that about. Well, they wouldn't all say that. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a poll later. <laughs> So throughout the years of your teaching, and you mentioned, you know, being empathetic to your students, and you realized and began researching uh, the gap between under-resourced and fully resourced students. And right. instructors say that their number one issue in the classroom is underprepared students. So how did you become mm -hmm. inspired to focus on this area, and, and then how have you focused on this area? Well, again, this is an area where I didn't know what I didn't know um, until several years into my teaching career. And I teach at an open access um, campus, and I teach primarily pre-nursing students. My course is a prerequisite for them to get into the nursing program. Um, and my course is the first course. That, there's no prerequisite for their microbiology course. So often, they're taking it their first semester. And um, I and, and some of my colleagues, we, we get frustrated that our students just weren't prepared, they weren't ready to learn, they didn't have the background that we thought they needed. And um, after, um, I'll talk to you in a bit, I, I started working with a nonprofit in town, I realized that the, the students are totally capable but they come from backgrounds, particularly in my town, but I've found this all over the United States now, where they are under-resourced either financially, um, as we tend to think of it, or in um, adequate high school preparation. And students like this have, you know, there are several characteristics about them that we as college professors, we take for granted that they are capable of, but they might not be. I mean, they are capable, but they haven't been practiced in it. And those are things like um, how to approach a problem to solve it, you know, how to write down salient features of a problem and, and distinguish between those and the ones that aren't important in order to move down the road to solve a problem, how to chunk their information into meaningful pieces. Um, if you've ever had a student who highlights every sentence in the chapter, you know that they have never been taught to differentiate between um, trivial things and important points. Um, and I want to emphasize that they are capable and we might be the people 
who actually moves them to be able to do that if we recognize that rather than just get frustrated with them. There are some other things such as the, 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 the language register, um, whether we're speaking casually in the classroom and then perhaps writing formally on an exam. And even though they thought they knew it, they can't decipher necessarily how we phrased something. Um, their overall le level of prose literacy, which I'm sure most college professors, they'd be surprised to hear what the average level of prose literacy is in, in college students. Just things like that, none of which are their fault and none of which they can't overcome. But if you want to stop being mad at your students and instead find a way to move them forward, I mean, you, you could, as I mentioned, possibly be the first person in their assembly line education to convince them that they're capable of things and just show them, demonstrate how to do some of these things. Oh, wow, that's really inspiring to even know that <laughs> to make just that little bit of difference can make a huge mm -hmm. difference. Mm -hmm. And there are so many statistics, you know, the, the 9.8 million high school students, it, the average graduates reading comfortable at only a seventh or eighth grade level, and studies that only 44% of ACT test takers tested ready for college level reading when they're going into college, which mm -hmm. are just astounding numbers. Well, and keep it, go ahead. No, I was just going to say then that we have the highest college dropout rate. So, yeah, so all this information, um, what does actually students' reading ability play in their overall education? And so, what issues yeah. are important to be aware of? Yeah, I've been studying this um, for the better part of two years now. Um, and I want to point out that that statistic that you read, that 44% of ACT test takers are ready for college-level reading, Keep in mind that um, two-year colleges, community colleges, generally do not require ACTs or, or SATs. And so it's not really picking up students who are um, enrolling in those places. And again, there's, there's no way I want you to construe what I'm saying as victim blaming. These students, um, let, let me trace a little bit for you. And um, this is not political, this is just factual, that the wealth graph gap in the United States has been growing exponentially in the last 30, 35 years. And the achievement gap, which accompanies the wealth gap, like whether you so much, you achieve so much less educationally if you are in the lower part of the income scale, that has increased 40% in the last, since I've started teaching in the 19, early 1990s. So those of you who have been teaching, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, and you think it's gotten worse, um, it, it has gotten worse. And that's because the educational system, the K-12 system, has become more polarized. The haves and the have-nots are further apart from one another. And the vast major majority of students who show up in our classrooms, uh, unless you're in a very elite school, they have come from a K-12 system that has not adequately prepared them. A, for reading, and B, for some of these other skills I talked about. Um, it's, it, one thing we know, Valerie, is that 40% of students who are A students in high school require at least one developmental course in community college or college. 40% of A students. So wow. the difference of a, between an A student and a poorly functioning, poorly funded public school 
and one in, a, in, a, in an excellent school is huge. But as I said, the majority of our students are not coming from excellent schools because the wealth gap and the educational um, quality gap has grown so much. Um, mm -hmm. And as you said, the United States has the highest college dropout rate in the industrialized world. So what's happening is we are um, we're sending we're, we're telling our young people that everybody needs to go to college, but we're not preparing them in our K through 12 system. There's a complete disconnect. Um, and it's really sad. And what I want to emphasize, and I'll probably emphasize it five more times, is mm -hmm. they have the capability. And that's, you know, we'll talk about solutions in a minute, but that's one of the biggest solutions is just showing them how and why they have the capability. Um, it's, you yeah. know, we can't fix what's wrong in K-12. We, you know, you can if you want to, you know, go into politics and do all that stuff. But as college professors mm -hmm. in a subject matter class, um, there are some concrete actions you can take in the classroom a, that show you relate to the students and B, that can close this gap rather than narrow the gap. Mm-hmm. And on that, do you have any specific methods or tips that college instructors can do to help bridge this gap? Are there any specifics that you can mention to share? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of little techniques, um, but there are and the peer-reviewed, um, hypothesis-driven research has shown two major overarching things that are important in situations like that. The first is called the growth mindset, and this is an idea that has been extensively researched by a woman named Carol Zweck. You just you can Google growth mindset or her name, Carol Zweck, um, and that is just spend five minutes showing a video that will convincingly demonstrate to the students in your class that their ability to learn is malleable. They can grow. The size of their brain can grow. And there's a toolkit called the Growth Mindset Toolkit um, that provides examples of this. For instance, that the size of the brain of people trying to learn the London street system to become London cab drivers, after they had studied for months and months, their brains were actually larger. So it is not, um, you know, it, it, it's not your destiny to, for instance, say, I'm not good at math. I'm no good at science. Science scares me. There are lots of ways you can just talk to your student. If this is all you do, you know, in the first week of class and show them, you know, spend five or ten minutes on this topic. Um, there's all kinds of literature that you can summarize for them. No, this is not the way it is. This, your brain will stay the same size if you learn the way you've always learned, which is with worksheets and standardized testing. But open your mind, and in this class, you can be, become good at science. That's called the growth mindset, and it's, like I said, lots of data about it. The other, the second thing is, believe it or not, with your, even with your underprepared students, you want to use higher order learning techniques, not lecturing and a midterm and a final. Um, I've tried this over and over and over again with my open access students and using techniques such as just-in-time teaching, um, having them read and discuss with themselves and you just teach what they 
um, show you that they need to be taught using peer instruction. Basically, what I would call constructivist ways of learning have been found um, basically to, to kick students into the growth mindset and to increase their learning gains. And again, this is peer-reviewed, hypothesis-driven research, not just someone's um, antidote. And yeah, antidote about no an anecdote <laughs> about what happened in their classroom. Um, one thing that McGraw Hill has um, that I just love is their Learn Smart um, program, which is a, an adaptive learning tool online that you can assign to students for low stakes before the class starts. They have low level, low Bloom's level questions. And if you're really good at it, and, you know, you already know the material, it might take you 15 minutes. But if you're not, you'll get the questions in different forms and you'll work with it even for a longer period of time. And it might take you 40 minutes. But what it does is it levels the playing field so that everyone has an idea of the vocabulary. Everyone has an idea what they're doing. Even if they're just clicking through the questions and not really thinking about them, they're absorbing information so that the, you know, their, their brains are more of a fertile ground when they get into the classroom. And that's been shown um, to improve learning by at least a letter grade when you employ those techniques. Oh, those are three very awesome things that are very doable to add mm -hmm. to any classroom. Right. So based on all your research, how has it inspired you to open your community nonprofit that's focused on education? <laughs> I just, your passion shows through just, just talking with you so far, but I'm sure it's going to be even more when you tell us about this. Well, I don't know. It was a two-way street. I feel like the nonprofit taught me more about education in my classroom than the other way around. Mm -hmm. um, I, my campus is in a small Rust Belt city that has been, you know, really down at the heel. There's a 59% permanent adult unemployment rate. Um, and that, of course, counts people who are off the unemployment rolls um, and have just given up. And so I, um, when I was dean of this campus, I really felt like we should be more involved in helping to improve the lot of the community around us. And so, again, being incredibly naive and thinking, I can do this. Let's just try. <laughs> um, I started a nonprofit um, called the Community Building Institute, and it's focused on um, family education and neighborhood, a holistic approach that um, allows people to rise out of poverty. And again, I was naive, but eventually I got people to come to work for me who knew what they were doing. And um, we now have, we, we pour about a million dollars annually into the families in our neighborhood. Um, we have everything from preschool, we have play groups for uh, mothers and kids. Um, during which we get their kids signed up for Head Start. We have Head Start at our facility. We have after-school programs for elementary school kids that um, is academic enrichment and catch-up, as well as food and sports activities and relationship. Um, we have STEM activities for junior high students. And in the high school, um, we have what we call Future Classroom. We, it's located at the high school in which every junior and senior meets multiple times with um, a staff member from us 
to talk about their aspirations and to explain to them that they can go to college or they can get a professional job or a trades job um, and how to go about doing one of those things. Um, and we run a community center where we have basketball and chess classes and chess tournaments and um, ESOL classes and GED classes. So we're kind of just a wraparound. And, and I say we, um, like I said, I don't, I'm, I'm not hands-on much anymore, but I have really good staff who know what they're doing, and it's very exciting. And interacting with those people, and this is probably the most important point for the purposes of, of this conversation, interacting with our clients and our families who became our friends, you know, and they're our neighbors, showed me how, how much I don't know, you know, that I'm wearing, and most of my peers and friends and, you know, my fellow college professors, we wear these middle-class lenses where we assume that, yeah, for in this instance, for, yeah, parents know that they're supposed to play with their kids and they know that they're supposed to read to them. Well, that's a middle-class perception, but it's not universally held by everyone. And when, as college professors, we say, yeah, people know that they need to come to class rather than choose to babysit for their sister's kids. Well, no, that's a middle-class thing. And I, that set me on a journey to examine the middle-classness of my campus and my classroom and to remove the biases I had. That This wasn't bad behavior. It wasn't lazy behavior, et cetera. It's just a different kind of perception, a way of living in the world than I have had. And it changes everything when you can turn your attitude like that in the classroom. So I would have to say that my friends, clients, and neighbors at the community um, center have taught me more than I've ever taught them. Oh, that is just so cool. And you, you brought that word relations again, relationships. So it's really, yeah, yeah it's cool how you, you've just brought people together um, and, and really just because of an idea you had, which is amazing. <laughs> well, like I said, <laughs> it relies on my complete naivete. <laughs> oh, it's great. So student literacy even plays a role in your writing. And as the author of Microbiology, a Systems Approach, which is out in the fifth edition, and Microbiology Fundamentals, a clinical approach, which just came out in its third edition this year, uh, you feel mm -hmm. it's important to relate to all types of student backgrounds. Tell us how you bring student literacy and just the ability to read and write um, into your books. Well, since I've become aware of that issue, um, and you know, there are, there are entire academic programs that study student reading, student literacy, et cetera. And um, as college professors in sciences, we're not necessarily having access to that. So I, at first, my reaction was, oh my gosh, my students are only comfortable reading at the seventh to ninth grade levels. That's their problem and they need to read, <laughs> they need to read gooder. But um, <laughs> I, in studying the literature from other people, I found out that, you know, the most, um, the very, very many famous authors, literature, literary authors like J.K. Rowling and Leo Tolstoy and John Grisham, their works are leveled at about between the sixth and ninth grade. I'm not kidding you. It just blew me away when that happened, as are our local newspapers. Um, the New York Times might be written between the ninth and twelfth grade. 
but college textbooks, we are writing as if we're talking to one another, to our peers, to our scientific peers, because most textbooks in the uh, first year of college are written at the 13th grade, possibly the 12th, often the 14th. <laughs> and there, you know, we learned how to read and write that way over many years of graduate school. And yet we are writing textbooks in this way. And of course, I don't want to say that we have to dumb down our textbooks. Mm -hmm. The technical terminology is the least problematic for our students because they know they have to learn that, the new stuff, you know, peptidoglycan, um, the P lymphocyte, um, things like that. They know that that has to be a priority for them. But are we wrapping those terms in sentences that are so unwieldy that most of our, you know, adult peers wouldn't even have an easy time reading them. So I have started looking at my work, my textbook writing, and I just do things such as uh, writing shorter sentences. Um, same meaning, just chopping these long, long sentences with lots of semicolons in them down um, so they look more like something that, uh, that they would um, read voluntarily. Um, here, here, this is an example that I was looking at today. Might not be the best example, but so in, in a previous edition, I wrote, the symptoms of type three hypersensitivities are due in great measure to this pathologic state. So college professors would not even blink at that because mm -hmm. it's the kind, that's the way we talk and read. But why shouldn't it say, and now it does say, this situation leads to the symptoms of type three hypersensitivities, not due in great measure to this pathologic state. <laughs> you see the difference there? It comes Absolutely. naturally to us, but it should not come naturally to our students. Um, lastly, um, McGraw-Hill has this cool thing um, called heat mapping, where after an edition has been out for a while, I get a heat map from the chapter that includes you know, the answers from thousands of students on their on this online Learn Smart environment. And the heat refers to if the sentence about which a question was asked is highlighted in red, it means most of the students missed it. If it's highlighted in green, then most of the students got it right and there's orange and yellow in between. Um, and I, you know, it wasn't intended for this purpose. It was intended that for writers to match up their questions and, you know, or do, be clearer in their writing. But I can look at it and say, this might not be a difficult topic. I might just have written a very unwieldy sentence. And I can use it as a filter to say, okay, this is all the red stuff has got to go. Whether it was, um, you know, you can't take out difficulty level, but you just have to change the reading level, the readability. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a, um, a very handy tool that I have in rewriting my books. Oh, that's great. So based on your learning and studying the, to bridge the gap, what is your vision for the future of teaching microbiology and student literacy? Do you have a vision of what it will look like one day? Well, I, I, would, I would summarize it, and I see this all over the country as I travel. Um, that instruction will be increasingly constructivist, meaning that the students will be responsible for 
reading. They'll have texts that are have a good readability level and working with each other through peer instruction um, and problem-based learning, which we know um, is leads to, the, everyone knows, this leads to the highest learning gains. Um, there are ways, you know, the, the issue that people who don't do it have is A, they're too busy with other things their department is requiring them to do, or B, they don't have enough time in the classroom. But there are very concrete ways where you can harvest time from your 50-hour period or your, you know, 75-minute, 50-minute period, I mean 75-minute period. There are ways to do that so that you can allow this constructivist learning. Um, and that's, that should be the feature of every discipline, um, mm -hmm. including microbiology. Yes. Oh, I love that. So this is just all so inspiring and um, just making such a difference in our industry. So thank you so much. Switching sure. sure. gears a little bit. So a couple episodes ago, I added a little fun segment uh, to our podcast asking our guests, what's your favorite microbe and why? <laughs> Do you have one and what is it? Well, first of all, I have to relate a story several years ago at ASM's educators meeting. There was a costume ball, and you were supposed to dress up as your favorite microbe. Oh, my goodness. I think, I think I'm still emotionally scarred from that. So <laughs> this, this is a difficult question. But first thing on top of my mind is Malassezia furfur. Because how would you not love an organism named Malassezia furfur, right? <laughs> It's a fungus that causes skin conditions, but um, it's just its species name is Furfur. F U R F U R. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here with us, Kelly, and for your influence on our industry. We sure are very lucky to have you as part of our team and uh, microbiology in general out there, and our educators are very lucky to have you as well. Thank and, you. And, you all out there want to learn more about Kelly and her great work, you can actually visit her website at kellycowan.org, and you'll find some really great stuff there. And can I interrupt like, right there? Wait, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yes, Valerie, please. But, um, I wanted to let people know that if you go to that website and you get hit the contact page, you'll see that I am willing and anxious to come visit your school to talk about, you know, in more detail some of these learning techniques, et cetera. And you can find out how to do that at um, probably a lot less than you think, including free, if that's necessary. Um, because as Valerie said, it's my passion. So go to my website and hit me up. Yes, kellycowan.org. Thank you so much, Kelly. And if okay. you like this episode of Grow Microbiology, like us on iTunes and subscribe to get future episodes for best practices and inspiration in microbiology.